This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Check out their newly revamped Unwrap program, which gives writers month-long access to educational webinars, interactive pitch prep sessions, and online pitching opportunities. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we'll be talking about the ins and outs of a TV writer's room. A few weeks ago, we were invited by Roadmap Writers to do a free webinar for them, which we are now releasing as an episode of the podcast. And we'll be doing an overview of what goes on inside a TV writer's room, including who's who, breaking out a series, micro versus macro stories, and the etiquette of a writer's room. Yeah, so all of that will be uh, right after this. So today, writers, in case you uh, do not know, our topic is about writers' rooms, being inside writers' rooms, how they work, what they are, why they work the way they do. So if you're not here for that, you know, now is the time to log off and find the session you actually want. (laughs) You guys can't see it, but Joey is sitting right over here and he's cackling at me. He thinks it's hilarious. Uh, but why don't I have you gentlemen introduce yourself and then we can get going. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so my name is Nick. Um, whoop, are we, we still on? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my name is Nick Watson. I am a TV comedy writer. Um, most recently I was a staff writer on season two of final space, the animated sitcom for TBS. Before that I was freelancing on uh, some kids animation, a show called littlest pet shop for Hasbro and discovery family. And before that I did a whole bunch of different things, uh, creative exec at a management and production company. I worked in physical production on shows like the Muppets and criminal minds and a whole bunch of other things. So, uh, yeah. And I've been in LA for a little over three years now. Um, I'm from Australia originally, my accent's kind of gone away. So mm. you have an accent. What? Uh, I'm uh, Alex Friedman. Uh, I occupy the one hour slash TV drama space. Uh, I'm originally from Paris, which is why I also have an accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved to the states about eight years ago. I won my green card, the lottery. I'm one of those uh, lucky people. <laughs> and uh, since then, I've worked in uh, TV in various capacities, uh, first in uh, development at Epix, uh, and then I worked on Hell uh, Wheels, the AMC show, and Fox Guys, the TMC show. And I just finished uh, working on the second season of the Netflix sci-fi show, Alter Carbon. Super cool. And I absolutely do not believe you when you tell me you're from Paris, because your English is perfect. <laughs> I, c- I could speak like this on uh, the entire webinar. <laughs> <laughs> Please do, for the rest of the webinar. That's the new rule. <laughs> Um, all right, cool. Well, I figure it's best to probably kick this off with addressing what is the purpose of a writer's room? Why even have one? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that the, you know, I guess you have to realize that a t- making a TV show is a huge undertaking and it's not possible really to, to do that all by yourself, especially on the creative level. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to that. There are some people who sit down and write an entire, you know, six episodes of a season or something. One of the British shows do that. But the traditional model is is to have uh, a large group of writers um, that's being headed up by a showrunner who's kind of the creative vision of that. And so they will hire a team of, of writers from different levels of experience, other very experienced writers, some newer writers. And then there might be anywhere from you know six to eight to 10 other writers in the room with them. And their entire job is essentially coming up with the stories and uh, then turning those into documents they can do stuff with outlines, scripts, that kind of thing. Right, and to next point, I mean, TV is quite different from let's say feature where in feature you only have to produce essentially a 90 
to 120 pages uh, of content, whereas in TV, you have to, uh, at so, um, sometimes you have to do 22 episodes uh, of a one hour show, which equals 60 pages. So imagine, you know, 22 times 60 page uh, in a single year. That's a huge amount of content. So that's why you also need uh, that, uh, that room of writers to not only generate idea after idea after idea, but also to generate that content on the page. Nice. I love it. Okay. So we've got our writer's room. We've established that we do probably need one and this is a good idea to have one. Now the question is, what are the different roles in the writer's room? You know, who's who and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So just starting from, let's say the top down, you have essentially your showrunner or usually is the creator of the show. Uh, sometimes if it's a, a newer uh, person who created the show, then they're going to bring in a, a showrunner with more producing experience because essentially that position is the equivalent of being the CEO to a multi-million dollar company uh, because what most people don't realize about the position is it isn't just about being a super writer, so to speak, uh, with all the creative abilities. It's also about managing on the production uh, scale everything from the top down. So that's a key position to look out for. And then underneath, usually most genres and most rooms have a number two, uh, which is producer, usually an executive producer with equal, if not slightly below experience, who will help run the room, run the writer's room and help the writers come up with ideas while the genre is busy doing all these other production tasks. And then you have, you know, your co-EPs who uh, are also involved in uh, in the breaking of the story and sometimes the production. And then you have sort of that mid-level tier so after your co-executive producers you go down the next level and you've got people like uh what is it after that supervising producers or, right yeah supervising producers and then sometimes those can be kind of consultants that they bring in they're not always people who are there five days a week in the room they can be say someone who was very experienced and run a lot of genre shows before um but you know they're they're busy developing or something like that so we'll have them in one or two days a week or they might bring in a writer like that to um, supervise on set and hang out while they're filming and and be the kind of the showrunner's eyes and ears on the set as well so and then you keep working your way down those mid-levels, you get stuff like uh, regular produ- uh, producer level writers, co-producer, uh, down to kind of, you know, executive story editor, story editor, down to the staff writers, which are usually the entry-level kind of writing jobs in a room, what a lot of people are striving to, to get to. Absolutely. And a lot of the rooms, and again, it depends on, on the show you're talking about, but a lot of rooms by and large are top heavy, which means that they have a lot of uh, those higher level positions. And because those people are the most expensive because they have the most experience, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the end, and uh, the staff writer or even the uh, story editors are going to be the last people staffed uh, because they're the cheapest. And at that point, uh, in terms of the budget of the show and budget of the room, uh, that showrunner and those EPs only have a few dollars essentially to purchase or rent out a, a staff writer. And the expectations of all those different levels of writers are are you know, according to, you know, their rank right. and how much they're paid. So when you come in as a staff writer on a lot of shows, um, there isn't the expectation that you're always going to be right off the bat, pitching out a million ideas, writing a bunch of episodes for the show. Often you're there to learn at least for the first year. And so, you know, maybe once or twice per day, you might chime in with a little idea that helps someone out. If you're lucky, you might get assigned one script. You might be co-writing a script that season, whereas the higher level writers are taking multiple scripts or they're uh, really doing the bulk of the talking and the discussion in the room. And you should be kind of deferring to them when you are one of those lower level writers. All right, cool. So let's say if somebody is, you know, aspires level staff writer, writer's assistant, story editor, what have you, uh, what are some important skills that people should have to develop in order to A, get into the room and then B, succeed in the room? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of people that is the path that they take towards getting staffed is joining as a member of the support staff, whether that is uh, a writer's PA, who is the kind of person who will usually get lunch and coffees for the writers. They'll hang out, they'll, you know, uh, make sure the office is stocked and do any kind of little runs and tasks that they need. It's like a regular PA on except, except you're assigned solely to the writers and you're kind of making sure that they're looked after. Um, you can also you know, be a writer's assistant, which is a little more hands-on. You're in the room, you're taking notes uh, from what everyone's talking about the story. You're typing up those notes, you're sending them out to people, you're keeping track of a number of more creatively involved things. Uh, and then there's also script coordinators, which is another kind of level of technical skill again, where you're you're really keeping track of each of the different drafts of the scripts and making sure that production has the correct draft to go and shoot and uh, all the changes that come through, you're republishing those, all that kind of thing. So it's very common for people to work their way up into the writer's room through these positions. And, uh, you know, I, I guess in terms of the skills that would make that valuable, what, what are your thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the... I'll just start quickly on the script coordinating side, uh, which I feel is probably the most technical position of all of them. So that's probably the hardest uh, position to have because uh, you are in the middle of all these different departments, uh, tracking continuity and, and tracking a lot of production elements. So that's probably the hardest job to do uh, and to get also. Uh, and most people I know who are script coordinators became script coordinators because they were trained under another script coordinator when they were just a writer's PA or writer's assistant. Yeah, you really need like a good level of understanding of how production works to be a script coordinator. You can't come in off the street. You know, the entry level job closest to a writer's room might be something like a writer's PA because anyone right. can go get lunches and coffees and whatever, but these skill, these jobs require more skills and experience. Absolutely. And I think the, the key uh, element I, I did want to mention is that a lot of people think being a writer's assistant is an entry-level position when in fact it is not. Uh, like Nick said, a writer's PA is probably the closest to an entry position a, a job that there is on staff. And that's because, uh, to be honest, the the um, the tasks you need to do are pretty straightforward. Uh, however, you can also uh, show that you're willing to do more on the job, uh, especially if you're writer's PA, uh, volunteering to help out the writer's assistant, volunteering to uh, maybe track the, the story or character arcs, whatever is needed by the writers. I think uh, sort of uh, taking stuff off the back of the writer's assistant is always a good way to indicate that not only are you, uh, you know, uh, a good potential writer down the line, but also uh, you're a good team player. Yeah, I think that's a useful skill to have for people in those kind of positions. I think just realizing that no job is below you, even if it's uh, rearranging the the LaCroix cans in the <laughs> fridge to be color coordinated or something like that, you know, showing that you're eager and excited and passionate to be there and really putting in the, the extra miles and the effort. Um, and people will notice that. And then maybe when an opportunity does come up to move up to writer's assistant or to fill in for them one day in the room, then people are going to be like, well, this person's really been putting in that work. So I think above all else, just, you know, um, the, the will willingness to, to go above and beyond is a very important skill for those kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. And just to touch on the, the writer's assistant side uh, quickly, I feel like the, the writer's assistant is one of the toughest jobs to do specifically because you're going to be in the room for, you know, maybe 10 hours a day, if not more, transcribing those notes and transcribing what people say. But the difficult element is uh, being cognizant of what needs to be in the document at the end of the day, because you may have I don't know how many pages in that document uh, after a whole day uh, of talking, but you got to go home and then you're going to edit that document so that's legible and useful for the writers because it's not just about transcribing. It's also about having a brain, so to speak, and, and being actively listening throughout the day and, and understanding where do people land on in terms of story ideas as well as what people will need down the line. Yeah, and I think I think more just keep in mind what is uh, what can I do that is going to make things easier for other people. Even if you're a staff writer, you're looking to, um, you know, 
riff off of ideas that other people are having and offering some new idea or solution. You never want to be that person who's throwing a stick in the mud or a spanner in the works and saying, oh, no, I don't think that story is going to work. No, that, that, that was a bad pitch. That was a bad joke. Things like that. Just being kind of positive and doing that improv yes and thing and just trying to build and, and make yourself valuable uh, and useful. And Absolutely. All right, cool. So we started getting into this uh, a little bit there at the end, which is perfect because now we can segue. Uh, so let's say, you know, our imaginary person is a writer, has been staffed, it's their first day, it's their first season, whatever it is. What are some things that they can expect from, you know, their first position in the room? Yeah, so I would say that, first of all, it's hard to give like an evergreen uh, statement about the first day in a room because every show is going to be different. Uh, however, to that point, I feel like uh, that first day in that first week uh, as a staff writer or as a person of the, the lowest on the turn pole, uh, I would argue that you should be listening instead of talking. You should be uh, feeling out what the etiquette of the room, what the politics of the room are. Maybe some people have worked with other people. Uh, maybe it's a brand new room. Uh, whatever the case may be, I feel like you need to tread carefully initially uh, and test the waters and see, okay, when should I be pitching or, you know, when should I be just sitting down, uh, shutting up and listening to what is around me? Yeah, I think especially in your first writing job, you're going to come in, you're going to be really excited, you're going to be full of ideas on to, you know, what you want to do in the show and how you can be valuable to people. But you do just have to take it a little bit easy and let the people who are running the room run the room. And like we were saying before, try to add to that and contribute and, and not dominate the discussion and that kind of thing. But again, like Alex said, it is... Um, a case-by-case -case basis you know there are rooms that are 12 writers and so you might get to talk once or twice a day if you're the lowest rung on, on the totem pole and then there are rooms that are four or five writers and in that case they might really need you to be pitching in and contributing and that kind of thing so it's just feeling it out and getting you know a sense of the room especially like Alex said in that first week understanding what is expected of each of the people and the, the politics and the dynamics and the things that are going on there yeah and, and that tone is usually set by the higher levels like whether it's the shorter or the number two and so some shows will have that very strict hierarchy where you know if you're a noob uh, staff writer you're not expected to talk at all whereas some rooms if it's just like five or six people you're in that room for a reason you are uh, expected to contribute in some capacity um, so it really depends on not just the show but again the, the makeup of the room and the willingness of the showrunner to listen also all right great so excluding of course you know specifics to different rooms different show writers different shows are there some general conduct rules that people should be following in addition to being a decent human being right <laughs> well i feel like being a decent human being is it's probably the hardest thing to do uh no <laughs> it's hard to like quantify exactly in terms of the room etiquette but the whole yes end of it all i feel like building on pitches is probably one of the most difficult but also crucial skills uh, to have in the room because a lot of people myself included have the tendency to uh, negatively react or be critical about other people's pitches especially when you find you know holes in the logic of it or the story or whatever but the reality is that no story is perfect when you pitch it that's the point of a writer's room is people building on top of ideas on top of ideas it's kind of like making you know lego set or uh, any kind of a building block or construction yeah you don't want people to be afraid of throwing out you know quote unquote bad pitches because often those are the things that even though they seem ridiculous or you know like they might not work on the face of it they can they can tick over an idea in someone's head and go wait 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 actually there's something about that that if we did this with this other thing and that might end up finding a solution so instead of everyone sitting around quietly like pulling out their hair going oh how do we fix this 
this, you know, sometimes people just start riffing on like, what if we did X, I know this is dumb, here's a bad pitch, but X, Y, Z. And then going through that process just allows you to kind of brainstorm and get all of that stuff out and find the way through. So you never want to be that person, you know, someone throws out this bad idea and they're like, oh yeah, that's dumb. That's not going to work. Like that's going to really not put you uh, in <laughs> a good light with the other right. writers. You got to let it suck in the room. Uh, you got to let it meander for a second. And when you're the one pitching, I feel like a lot of people uh, withhold their pitches because they want to express their ideas in this perfect bulletproof way. But the reality is, again, like any pitch you're going to be making is not bulletproof. So don't be afraid uh, if you do have an interesting idea that contributes to the conversation uh, to pitch it. Because a lot of uh, new writers are on the other scale of things. They're too afraid to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you got to find that middle ground. Yeah. And there's one thing that kind of uh, will frustrate me in a room when people are pitching too. And that's when other writers will cut someone off when they're in the middle of pitching. You know, someone starts talking about their great idea and then someone comes in. It's probably, you know, it's it's harmless. You know, they're trying, they're excited about it too. And they're like, oh yeah, and then what if this and this? Or they take it in some other direction. But that might not have been what that writer was trying to say. And it's kind of rude to just like stop them in the middle of their idea and talk over them and take over from them. So I think like let people do their pitch, hear them out, and then chime in with your thoughts. Take a minute to think about it rather than assuming you know what they're going to say or thinking you have a better idea to build on top of. Like Let people have their time in the spotlight. Yeah, I would say another element to watch out for uh, if you're newer in the room is to learn the lingo of the room and uh, mimic whatever uh, terms or uh, metaphors they like to use. Uh, I feel like writers' rooms especially have very special um, you know, vocabulary that they use. And so if you not only learn what that is but also uh injected in your own speech in the way you peep you in the way you pitch that is my accent in the way you pitch uh your stories i feel like uh you're going to be part of the room i guess that's like a basic like sociological concept but uh, it holds true within the writer's room between 12 people is you know if uh there's an inside joke or if the way they pitch it they, you know they use oh it's like the shape of this thing whatever and mm -hmm. then everybody starts using shape of or whatever it is um right. imitating and being part of that environment uh helps cool i love it um all right so let's say this hypothetical writer you know staff writer they're in the room they've learned the conduct they haven't offended anybody or put their foot in their mouth too much yet um so what is the process for you know breaking out a season or a series you know how do they plan what they're going to do and assign episodes jobs etc Oh, sure. So uh, in the first kind of, you know, a couple of days to weeks, um, there's often this process of what they call blue skying. And that's because it's basically just these big, broad ideas, like you've got a, an entirely blue open sky, and you could throw anything you want up there and let's see what sticks and see what happens. So there'll be a bit of that. I mean, depending on the timeline for the room and the, the constraints of production and how much uh, the showrunner creator came in with already in mind. Um, there's usually that kind of process of just like throw out your big ideas and, and themes and characters and, and see what we can do with it. So that's that's the place it tends to start. Yeah. And I guess for comedy, maybe it's a little bit different. But in drama, that's uh, going to be a few weeks uh, of time because, as you just mentioned, the showrunner and the creator usually comes in the room, hopefully with some idea of the different tent poles they want to hit. And depending on the, the framework of the show, if it's like, you know, a six episode series versus like a 22 episode uh, season, uh, they will have uh, those different arcs that they want to hit. Uh, and so that's a lot of, uh, maybe from the outside and it looks like a lot of time wasting, but from the inside, it allows the writers to not just think of stories, but really live in that world and live in that environment coming from something completely different before it. And then so typically you'll move on from there once you kind of gravitated towards some of those big ideas that were thrown out or that were put up by the, the 
showrunner um, into, I guess, looking at the what we call like the macro structure of a season, especially if you're working in drama or serialized comedy, uh, you're really wanting to find one of the big tent poles and the big moments uh, that are going to play out over this season. And it might be one every three episodes or, you know, it might be the the three big things that are going to happen and they're going to be the big cliffhanger moments or things like that. So um, you're finding those on both a story and plot level uh, and a character level as well in terms of the journeys and where they're ending up. Yeah, every room, again, it's going to be different. <laughs> I keep repeating that, but uh, some rooms will look at uh, the character arcs specifically. They want to know, okay, where is Jack starting in the season and where is he ending at the end and where does Jill end up connecting with Jack at what point in the season? And some rooms, they like their, you know, they're more story heavy. They're more based on, okay, what's the cool plot point or the cool twist? That's a lot of those procedurals, but a lot of those, you know, serialized mysteries. I'm sure like How to Get Away with Murder, I don't work in the room, but I know that they work a lot based on whatever that season mystery is, uh, that murder mystery. So it depends. Yeah, it really, again, <laughs> we'll say this a million times, but it depends on the comedy. The, uh, the show that I worked for did have some kind of serialized elements to it. And so we would be looking at character journeys over the season and then I guess tying it back to some of those big episode ideas we had. It's like, oh, maybe this is where this character has this point in their journey and that kind of thing. And then in trying to interweave the, the character arcs with the story arcs and the points at which they intersect and how those all kind of relate to each other. So it depends on if your show is based on an IP on my show. Uh, the fact that we're based on an IP didn't really matter at the end of the day, but it gave us a framework for that world building and that blue sky. Mm-hmm. So yeah, once you figure out those big temple moments, um, then you typically start breaking it down into uh, either the individual episodes or smaller episode arcs. I know some of the kind of um, the CW superhero shows will kind of imitate almost like comic arcs, how they have like a three or six episode run. And so they're doing these like little mini arcs within that. So that's that's sometimes the thing within drama particularly. Yeah, especially if you are looking at a season that's, you know, 20 plus episode uh, a year, you just cannot sustain a one arc of 20 episodes. That doesn't exist. So even if you look at uh, shows like 24, you know, that's like 24 episodes, but traditionally, every season of 24 is going to be broken down into three main arcs of uh, multiple episodes. And each each arc is going to be based around a villain. And that's why, you know, in season seven and eight, it kind of became tropey that, oh, wait, the villain from the first half of the season is not actually the main villain. There's a villain behind the villain and that idea. Uh, now, in, to go back to the CW um, example that you mentioned, a lot of those shows base their episodes on what the character's journey is going to be about. So it's not about finding the villain first it's about finding what barry for example on the flash is going through in that episode um so that's a different way of thinking from your traditional procedural who are mostly case-based and are mostly uh about finding the fresh off the headline concept that they want to hit yeah so like depending on whether it is a more procedural or hard reset kind of show like a law and order or even like the simpsons that's kind of a hard reset every week it doesn't tend to continue uh any sort of serialization across um it wouldn't really matter where you start breaking your individual episodes but with some of the more serialized ones um, uh, you do probably often start from the start. It's like, right, what's our episode one? Then we're going to do our episode two, three, and find how that all kind of leads into each other. Or, you know, you might have an idea of where you're going to end up as well. So then you get down to that kind of like episodic level. And all of this is just kind of like fractal and granular. It's like, you know, we do the big arcs and then the small arcs and then the episode arcs. And then within that, we have three plot arcs and two character arcs and all that kind of thing. So it just keeps going down and down and down on a smaller level. That um, And then you break the beats of the episode. Yeah. That's what you do. And then you look at really what are the interesting scenes and the interesting plot points uh, that you want to hit in that episode. And 
by and large, if you're on a broadcast network, the main tentpole moments are going to be around the cliffhangers, the outbreaks. Uh, and so that's usually where, you know, the skeleton of that puzzle is going to be. It's kind of like when you're filling out the corners before you fill in the, the middle part of the puzzle. Uh, that's usually how episodes are broken. Yeah, so each show has a certain number of acts that they work to. Um, it might be two or three acts in a comedy. In drama, it could be anywhere from four, five, seven acts. Uh, it really just depends on the show and what you're going towards. Like Alex said, sometimes they are the actual places where ads come in or for stuff like cable or Netflix. It's more of just a structural thing for the writers. So you're working to these big act break moments that are kind of, you know, these acts are almost like little mini arcs within themselves of, of plot and character that will build on each other through to the climax. Um, so it, for us, at least, when, when I was writing in Final Space, we would be finding uh, each of the act breaks and how does that, um, you know, serve the the story and the characters and where does it leave the audience and how does it all push us towards this this end? And that would be the, I guess, the bigger things we would find first and then go back and find each of the beats that lead up to those act breaks in each act. Yeah, on our show, is much more serialized and without any ads. So we were looking more so at the character arcs and the story narratives over just what a single episode is going to look like on a granular basis. Obviously, at some point, you do have to break the episode and what that looks like, but it's a lot of pitching and figuring out what the overall shape of the episode is because we don't have the luxury of having that traditional five-act structure like on a you know an NBC show. And so once you have the beats of an individual episode, there are different ways to do it. Some uh, rooms use index cards and they'll write down a beat and put it up on a board with pins and they can move them around and change where they want to go. Some of them write them up on a whiteboard instead and so they'll you know erase it and, and move things around that way. Uh, and then once you've kind of done that and run through it, sometimes you know if the showrunner isn't in the room, the showrunner will come in and you'll pitch it to them off of the, the beats on the index cards or the board and they'll say, well, change this and I didn't like that and that was good and then you do it again. And once you get that approved, that's when you typically head to the outline for the episode. All right, just to go back quickly before I go on the outline, the, the pitching to the showrunner is usually done either by the writer of the episode or by the number two, whoever's in charge in that room. Uh, and in terms of the index cards, sometimes we combine both and we do a magnetic tiles. Uh, that's the future. But then uh, the writer's assistant's job is to collate that information, either take pictures of the board and put it in the notes documents or transcribe whatever's on that board and put it in the notes. So whichever one works. Yeah, and even before that step, depending on your show, you might be... Uh, coming up with general what they call story areas, which might be a paragraph or something, generally what the episode is going to be about, or it might be a, a rough outlaying of what the three acts of it are going to be. Um, it depends on the show. And then you w might send that over to the network and get their general, the studio on the network, get their general thoughts and feedback on, do we like this as just an idea for an episode? What's the log line for this? Where are we heading? In this? Yeah, if it's a more hyper-serialized show, usually you're going to be pitching that season arc uh, from the get-go. And so the network usually has an idea, more or less, of what each episode is going to be about, because you're going to be pitching that season arc and uh, and that breakdown. Uh, now, going back to the outline of it all, once you do have those beats and those cards and those moments planned out, then those will be translated into an actual document. Usually, that's either the writer's assistant or the script coordinator's job to uh, translate whatever those beats are into an actual final draft outline document. Uh, and then the writers or the writer is sent to outline, and he or she is going to be writing out and expanding on those beats uh, and writing prose, essentially. Yeah, so an outline almost looks like a script. It's got you know your scene headers, uh, interior car, day, etc. And then there's just like a very short description of what happens in the scene based off of the notes from that you discussed in the room and the beats that you broke in the outline. Uh, there might be dialogue pitches, there might be joke pitches, there might be certain big moments that need to happen in that scene, but a lot of the smaller details and the way to work around through that is left up to the writer once they sit down and they start fleshing that outline into the actual first draft of the script. Yeah, and if you want. Yeah, should, should we go through like the rest of the drafts <laughs> and through to the, the finished product? <laughs> well, that was actually going to be my next question, so you read my mind. Let's say, you know, the episode gets drafted. Um, 
what is kind of the revision process? Does it kind of depend on the show and the episode, I imagine, to some degree? Yeah, so like you said, it depends on the show and the episode. But we can just start assuming that from now on. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's like a crutch. I want to reuse that sentence. So once you're past the outline, usually you'll get notes on that, and then you're going to go to draft. And in terms of the assignments of drafts, it's usually by uh, order of a hierarchy. So whoever the higher ups are, they're going to be leading the charge in terms of, uh, you know, the EP is going to be writing the first episode, second episode, and so on. And then you go down the line. And that's why staff writers sometimes do not get an episode. Uh, That's because there's just not enough episodes for the number of writers in the room. Now, with that said, once you have that draft out, then usually the room is going to comment on it. And there's different levels. I don't know if you want to talk about the different levels of drafts. But essentially, you have the writer's draft, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the writer's output of whatever the draft is. She or he is going to send it to the room internally. And usually the showrunner will have comments. And the showrunner is going to give notes and the EPs are going to give notes on that draft. Sometimes the showrunner uh, himself or herself is going to be making those changes. But most of the time, it's expected for the writer to be making those changes because the showrunner is busy mm-hmm. uh, with all the production elements. Yeah, I'd say typically, once you get those notes back on your first draft, the writer takes one more stab at it, and then they hand it in again. And then anything else that's going to happen internally from there, the showrunner will just take their pass on it. And then once they're happy with that, and everything's all good, and it's gone through the, the room and all that kind of thing, uh, it starts to move its way uh, up the kind of uh, production company studio network ladder. And you'll have... Um, a different draft at each point, you know, you take it to, um, I'm not, I'm going to stop saying it depends on the show, but let's say there's a a studio network draft. And then, so they take the studio might look at it first and give notes. And then once it's good from that, you take it to the network. That could even be the earlier step of a production company or executive producer who really wants to do a draft of that first. You could have anywhere up to three drafts of approval, um, through that process. And then once the studio network are fine with it, and we've got that all green lit, that's usually when it goes to your shooting draft table reads too. Yeah. Table reads. But uh, just before that, uh, in terms of the, the, step of the process. It really depends on how specific the studio or the networks want to be with each draft. Sometimes it can go straight to network. If it's all in-house, most places will want you know that delineation between a studio draft and a network draft. In between each of the steps, the script coordinator is going to be looking at that draft and editing it and making sure that there's no uh, grammar mistakes and uh, and the continuity is fine and it's all formatted correctly. Yeah, so usually before you get your shooting draft, you'll have a table read draft and that's when they get the actors together, they get the producers and the writers all in a room and they just sit there and they do kind of like a cold read through the script and uh, the network and studio and those kind of people will often attend as well and uh, give their thoughts and notes after that table read and then they'll go back and do another draft which finally hopefully gets approved to go and shoot. Yeah. All righty, cool. Well, gentlemen, those were my questions. Uh, so I'm gonna... A couple minutes left. Oh, sorry. Ignore Joey. Uh, so we'll turn it over to the writers. Uh, let's see here. Gerald asks, may I please ask your thoughts about turning a feature script into a TV pilot? Is that a good idea, hedging one's bets or bad? I think it depends on what you want to be doing as a writer. If you are dead set on being a feature writer and that's the world you want to work in and you want to write movies and get them made, then there's nothing wrong with, you know, sticking with features. You don't have to do a bit of everything. Uh, But if you do want to branch out into TV as well, then, and you know that you have a feature idea or a feature script that's already proven that people like, um, then I don't see any harm in trying to adapt that to TV. I think it's just a matter of the process of doing that. You know, um, I wouldn't just take the first act of your feature and say, this is my pilot, because that's not exactly how TV pilots work. It needs to be a bit more of a self-contained thing that's, you know, there's a lot more to it than just kind of like pulling, I'll, I'll take the start of my story and now it's a TV episode. Yeah, it's funny because I was going to say the counter example. I know a friend of mine who transformed uh, his two features into TV pilots by taking the first act of his really? features. Uh, but that's that it. Work out, yeah. <laughs> it worked out fine. It actually worked out fine. But yeah. there was some tweaking involved. I want to say that's like the magic pill. Uh, but to your point, it 
it is true that if you want to be a TV writer, that's quite different from being a feature writer. So in terms of translating a feature into TV, I think the biggest question is, does that pilot, that does that concept have legs beyond the feature? Because mm-hmm. whenever I think of ideas for features, usually they're pretty self-contained. If you're translating even that first act of a pilot, does that just mean you're going to have two more episodes to that pilot or to that show? Or is it actually going to be a hundred episode long arc? Now, that's not to say you can't write uh, a more self-contained show, right? You don't need to write a generative log line that can generate a hundred episodes, but it's still worthwhile to look at the uh, viability, the forward momentum of that series past the pilot. Right. There are some ideas that just feel very suited to being told in a feature format. They often have kind of closed story and character arcs. The character starts in one place, ends up in another place, and that's the end of the story. Whereas TV has more of that ongoing feel to it, that the conflicts are never quite resolved. The characters never quite change fully. They're always dealing with something. And so, like Alex said, is there enough in that idea and those characters? Characters particularly, we say all the time on the podcast that TV is a character's meeting. Are your characters compelling enough for people to want to tune in each week and spend that time with them in their living room? Uh, All of that. there's a bunch of those bigger picture questions to consider before you even get down to the, the nitty gritty of turning it into a pilot script. Yeah, to your point, I feel like the, the key difference is that by and large, movies are story-based, whereas uh, TV is character-based. So the story can have legs in terms of that 90-minute feature, but do the characters, right? Because like you, if you're writing a good feature, then theoretically your character uh, is going to go through a change in those 90 minutes. Now, is it possible to extend that journey through 100 episodes? Perhaps, but uh, is that treading water? Is that a legitimate journey that we would want to embark on? That Those are questions you got to ask yourself when you're um, translating that feature into a pilot. Mm-hmm. Cool. All righty. Um, I suppose sort of a similar topic question. Uh, what are your thoughts on trying to break into TV? If you don't have any TV credits and, you know, like do, how many samples do you need? Are the odds stacked against you? Do you have to be in LA? That sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's TV is having a new golden age, and I think that a lot of people are very keen to get into TV and work in TV. It's it's the what they call peak TV right now. There's something like 650, 750 series on the air across all the networks. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's a bad time to be wanting to work in TV, but it, there certainly is a lot of competition. There are a lot of people wanting to get into that, not only newer aspiring writers, but also people who have traditionally been working in feature writing or playwriting or things like that. They're all wanting to kind of branch in and get into TV as well. So, um, you know, it's certainly not a bad idea, especially if it's something that you're passionate about and you want to live that life. I mean, it's important to note that there are, it's kind of a different career, you know, job style and career than being a feature writer. It really is around being in a writer's room with people for 50, 60 hours a week and uh, following that entire production process all the way through a TV series and multiple seasons and all that kind of thing. Whereas a feature writer, you can kind of do this more assignment type work where you go in and do rewrites and you're done after three weeks or you turn out one feature and then you sell it or you option it or something and then you're done and you're on to the next thing. It's a different kind of way of living and working. Yeah, I mean, feature writing is essentially akin to, you know, being a a novelist in a way, whereas uh, doing a TV work is, like you mentioned, very socially heavy. So I think uh, if you're more of a, you know, introvert, I think TV may not be the right place. But again, you can break those barriers. Now, in terms of breaking in uh, and starting out in TV, um, especially in that peak era TV, in my mind, there's sort of like three elements you're going to watch out for when you're starting out. 
Uh, one is your samples. So you do need samples, obviously. Uh, I would argue that pilots are probably more popular than specs. However, uh, writing specs of existing shows, so those are essentially fake episodes of existing shows, are not just worthwhile for the fellowships. There's different fellowships program asking for those spec samples. But even uh, but uh, writing a spec uh, episode is very useful in terms of a training ground because uh, in the writer's room, uh, when you're staffed, you're not going to be coming up with uh, original ideas like a pilot, right? You're going to be coming up with uh, ideas for an existing framework of a show. So that's essentially akin to uh, generating a spec script. Um, so having samples like a pilot, uh, multiple pilots, hopefully, uh, and a spec uh, is really worthwhile. So that's the writing side. On the industry side, um, I wouldn't contend that you probably need to get some kind of industry-related job, at least initially, uh, just to get to know people and meet because this industry, for better or for worse, is all about connections. Uh, so maybe you don't need to get a job to meet those people, but it definitely helps. So if you're getting a, a PA job or some kind of assistant work uh, somewhere, even if it's at an agency, uh, you can learn to you can learn the ground, but also learn all the people around it. And the right. third element, sorry, I just want to finish. The third element, uh, which in my mind is also sort of a, um, undervalued is this idea of branding yourself or uh, you know who you are as a writer that's this whole idea of being diverse uh, now uh, in terms of the writing of it all uh, a lot of that diversity comes through who you are as a person as a human being and your voice on the page uh, so I feel like that's also an element that's um, underutilized by a lot of people is they can put themselves out there and um, and answer the question of what makes them unique above everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to expand on a couple of those points, I'll say with your samples, um, it, it helps to, to you know, and along with branding as well, find your niche early on and make sure you have multiple samples in the same arena. They don't have to be exactly the same. They don't both have to be network multi-cams with slightly different ideas. One could be uh, a network family single cam comedy. One could be, um, you know, let's say a, a cable comedy that's a little bit more raunchy or something like that. But but you're, you're doing half hour comedy scripts, you know, and that's, you're like, I want to be a TV comedy writer, um, as opposed to having one of those and then a sci-fi genre, hour long pilot, and then a rom-com feature, and then a, you know, this and that, like, you'd want to really focus your efforts and present a united front about what kind of writer you are and then what, you know, people can be hiring you for. Yeah, just to quickly add on, on what you're saying, especially in TV, I feel like a lot of people forget that uh, TV is a very structural medium. It's unlike feature where in features, you know, you could say there's a three act structure, but it's not really, you know, it's kind of up to the writer to figure out what that structure of that feature is. In TV, there's an actual structure, right? If you work on, on an ABC show or an NBC show, you're going to have a structure. You're going to have this amount of real estate and this amount, these amount of acts to tell your story. So it's very structured. What that means is writing a half-hour show, writing a you know a Brooklyn Nine-Nine is very different structurally from writing a Twenty-Four or a Lost or whatever, a Breaking Bad or a Better Call Saul. Those are very different uh, formats. So familiarizing with. Uh, and sort of deciding what your um, your major is, so to speak, if you're a TV comedy writer or if you're a TV drama writer, um, is very important from the get-go. Yeah, and it just helps people to know that you understand how those formats work and that you can do that work if they were to hire you in a, in a writer's room or something like that. You know, you may try to break into TV with a feature sample, but at some point they're going to want to read a TV pilot from you or a spec at least or something like that to know that you can write TV. So making sure that you have that. And it's not to say that you can't use other samples to impress people. There a lot of like theater writers and uh, they'll read a play and be like, wow, I really love your writing. But at some point you will have to write a TV episode uh, and it should probably be before you're in the writer's room. Yeah. And I would also say that uh, if you're in between still and you do want to work in both half hour and one hour, 
it's easier to transition once you're established in one domain than trying to break in in both domains at once from the get-go. Uh, so people like Gene Espenson or Liz Sarnoff are people who've written for both half-hour and one-hour shows, but uh, when they transitioned out of their you know current frame, they were already established. They already had success in that other genre. So uh, especially when you're first starting out, you got to brand yourself. You got to figure out who you are and what kind of writer you are. And then to your second point of meeting people and networking, uh, it's not to say that you have to live in LA or you have to like throw everything away and move out here right away, but it'll just make it more difficult for you if you're not at least able to fly out here for a week or two and, and go to some networking events and meet people and be introduced to executives and things like that. And there are a number of ways that you can now reach out online and, you know, uh, TV, Facebook writing groups and, and Twitter chats and, and you know, uh, online pitch sessions and all that kind of thing. So there are ways to branch out here, but at some point you're probably going to have to get your boots on the ground in LA and do a little bit of uh, uh, networking to really establish yourself. Especially in TV. I feel like in feature, you can make the case that you can be anywhere as long as you sell that feature. Uh, in TV, the writers' rooms are physically in LA. Uh, some of them are in New York, but you know that's only a handful of them. 90% of the rooms are in LA. So you have to be physically present to be in the writers' room and be pitching and helping with stories. Uh, so unless you're literally selling pilots, uh, by and large, you're going to have to be in LA to work in the right. Cool. I love it. Um, all right. Well, here's a really interesting question. Um, so this is talking about quote unquote disposable characters or characters who die in a show, I suppose. Uh, the writer specifically mentions Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. So he wants to know, is this something that writers argue and discuss whether the character should stay or go or is it, you know, kind of a logistical scheduling thing? Maybe the actor gets a movie and they have to leave um, or maybe a combination of both. Yeah, I, I mean, from my personal experience and, and from uh, my friends who work on similar shows, I would say all of the above. It is both. Sometimes it is about the actor's availability and sometimes it is about the, the character's journey. I would argue that when characters are killed by and large and when their stories end is when their stories end, meaning their journey uh, is over. They've accomplished whatever or they've done. Now, it is true that while well, Game of Thrones is based on my books, it's slightly different and Walking Dead also. But by and large, death are meant to stir the pot, but also to sort of heighten the emotion of the other characters in the, in that environment. It's not just about you know killing uh, someone just for the, the the spite of it. It's also about bringing up the stories to tell for these other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that those kind of deaths are never just done at random. No writer's like, oh, I'm sick of writing for this character. Let's just kill him. You know, um, like like Alex said, sometimes there are like production scheduling things. The actor wants to leave and go off on a show, and so they kill off the character. But by and large, I think it's usually pretty well planned out that you know this character is going to be concluding their story at this point, and and it does really have an impact and a meaning on the rest of the story and the characters. They're not disposable, as it as it said. Yeah, and I will say that uh, maybe on serialized shows, especially, you sort of know the natural conclusion of certain characters. So when Whenever those characters are introduced, uh, maybe even in an anthology type setting, you know from the get-go that that person has only limited lifespan in terms of the the narrative real estate. That said, uh, if it's an ongoing character in the rooms, people do debate, obviously, because people get attached. You know, some people get attached, some writers get attached to certain characters and others uh, not so much. So, you know, a room is essentially a micro version of a fandom of their shows. Like all the writers care about their show as much as the fans do, perhaps even more so because, you know, they're in that room talking about that show for 12 hours a day, you know, five days a week. So they need to care about those characters and, and need to care about the stories. So yeah, of, of course, people are going to be debating uh, heartily about, uh, you know, saving certain people. And I'd say if it's something that you're planning on putting into your own writing, uh, just to be wary of doing that in a pilot, unless it's very particularly calculated, you're 
want your pilot to be a reflection of what every week of your show is going to be. It's the same or similar cast of characters and you understand the dynamics and the plot and how things are going to be working out. So if you kill your main character at the end of the pilot, I think it's going to lead to more confusion than it is to mystery and intrigue. And we're not going to know what the next episode looks like. So we're not necessarily going to want to read on and buy your show and and find out um, how that all goes. Unless you're rebooting Six Feet Under and every episode starts with a death. But besides that, that's more of an inciting incident. I'm I'm kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Man. Oh, I love it. Um, All right. Cool. So Anthony McBride asks, uh, how hard is it to sell that first pilot without being in the writer's room? Uh, Anthony, do you mean sell as in just, you know, sign it away? Your other showrunner take my pilot and make a show um or are you talking about you being the showrunner i mean i can try to answer for the you know, uh, maybe let's go ahead and answer both <laughs> Well, yeah, so in terms of selling a pilot itself, I would say almost impossible. The majority, the vast majority of people who sell TV shows to networks um, and, you know, get developed and make a pilot. And then if the pilot goes well, it gets turned into a series. They are all proven writers, especially in TV. You know, a lot of people don't even start doing development until they're uh, on their second or third show where they've had a few years in the room. And they understand that, you know, they've built those relationships with the executives and the development people that are going to they're going to be working with. Um, it's, it's a very rare story for a spec pilot to come out of the ether from somewhere mm-hmm. and get sold. Now, that's not to say it hasn't happened before. Mickey Fisher is a great example of that, where he just had a, an incredible pilot and there was a lot of interest in it. And so that kind of thing does happen once in a blue moon. But um, by and large, the majority of show creators who sell stuff and it goes on to be successful um, have been working writers for a while. Yeah, I would say there are maybe two types of exceptions uh, in terms of selling a pilot if you're not on staff or you know a high-level person. Uh, one is if you have amazing attachments. So maybe you have an amazing actor or an amazing director, an amazing producer or an amazing showrunner attached to that project. Uh, Mickey Fisher got his pilot extent uh, bought by CBS in part because Amblin and Steven Spielberg were attached to that pilot when they read it. So it's not just out of the ether of, of Mickey Fisher's writing. It's also because of all these people involved. The second alternative is if uh, that person is successful in another field. So, you know, Nick who did, uh, other Nick, who did a true detective was a novelist. And so you you have those people. David Simon, of course, was a journalist before uh, he, he worked on Homicide. Um, so you have those uh, people who are successful in other fields and can parlay that and probably sometimes their IP into uh, selling a pilot and transition that way. All right, cool. Sorry, guys, there's a plane overhead. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, I see as well. Yeah. You mentioned being a showrunner after selling a show. That's also fairly uncommon, maybe even more so uncommon than selling a pilot out of nowhere. Once, uh, you know, most creators get to be sort of co-executive producers or maybe executive producers, and they are then paired up, as we mentioned earlier, with an experienced showrunner who has that production experience and will be running the room for them. So, yeah, you get a, a sweet, cushy job. You get to be the creator of a show and you get your name in the credits and all that kind of thing. But uh, I can barely think of anyone who was allowed to run their own show after first selling. Maybe Phil Rosenthal and Everybody Loves Raymond is a, a weird, weird exception to that. I mean, by and large, the reason why that is, is because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, being a showrunner is essentially being a CEO of a multi-million dollar company. So they're not going to hand over like a random person the keys to, you know, this uh, multi-million dollar company. When I think of examples of people who sold pilots out of nowhere and, and shows out of nowhere, I think of, you know, Josh Schwartz, who sold the OC when he was barely out of USC, but then you, he had had Mac G attached and he was, you know, a big producer of that show. So even, you know, someone uh, who's selling that show, and I think Mickey Fisher was not the showrunner of the first season, maybe the second season, but initially they're going to be bringing that experienced showrunner, that experienced producer to work the room. All right. 
Cool. Uh, let's see. We have a question from Jerry. Uh, is there an absolute no-no that will get a new writer asked to leave or fired other than typical HR fireable offenses? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's like within the writer's room, yeah? Yeah. Showing up naked? Uh, no. <laughs> I'd see. say handing your scripts in late, like not meeting your yeah. deadlines. There, there really is no extension or you know uh late password it's not college like you you hand your scripts in on time um and and get your stuff done otherwise i think that you probably won't be asked back or you'll have your contract kind of terminated yeah i would also say uh not being socially aware about the room etiquette uh so for example if you're in a room where you are expected to contribute and you're not talking at all for you know five days a week then you won't be asked back because you're not contributing on the flip side if you're the kind of person who keeps talking and interrupting people and just wants to get your ideas across even though nobody else is listening or you're shutting down other people's ideas and not really contributing uh, then probably again you're going to be uh, showing a negative experience uh, in the room yeah i mean it's not uncommon for writers to either lose their jobs or um, not be asked back for the next season not because they're a bad writer just because they're not a good fit for the show and that may be a social thing that they don't quite get along with everyone or they don't they're not on the same vibe or wavelength as everyone else when they're breaking these stories and they or they just don't understand the show and they're not kind of meeting the expectations of that. It's, it's a relatively common thing in the industry for, you know, it just not to be a great fit. And there's sometimes there's not even any bad blood there. It's just like, you're just not right for this show and we're, we're going to bring in someone else who is. Yeah, it's hard to quantify again what that, could be, but it usually comes down to you're not a right fit socially with the, the rest of the room. It's not really the way we break stories. You come from a different uh, type of breaking stories or uh, you're, you're not writing hitting the mark with your scripts, exactly. you know, what, what was expected of you. So things like that. Um, but I'd say that people are pretty forgiving of lower level writers and they understand that it's a learning experience for you. You know, you're not going to say a, a special word or sit in the wrong person's chair and then they're going to fire you <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. The other small sort of uh, exception I'll, I'll mention briefly is uh, some people are not brought back on a staff writer level because of budgetary reason and that's especially true for the diversity hires uh, I mentioned earlier the diversity programs especially you know programs like ABC pay for the writer to be in the room for that whole season and so it's uh, no money off the table for the for the you know for the EPs so they kind of get a free person in the room and so sometimes when that season wraps up that money runs out and so they'll sometimes they'll hire that person back but sometimes not and it's, it's increasingly common to for usually in a room when you start off, you kind of move up a level each year. That's very rough. It, sometimes it's two years, but um, it's very common these days for a staff writer to have to kind of repeat that year level twice. They do staff writer on one show and they go to another show, they do staff writer again, and then maybe they get promoted to story editor the next year. Right. So absolutely. All right. Cool. I have a question here. Um, let's see here. Are there rooms that, you know, really gel and play well? To, uh, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. I have not had enough coffee, gentlemen. I'm sorry. Um, are there rooms that really gel and play well together? They work well. Things are going great. And then on the flip side, are there other rooms that are really cutthroat and competitive and just kind of a harsh environment to be in? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it really, again, it, it, to me, it comes down to the way the showrunner sets the tempo. Uh, some showrunners are more ruthless and and let the room be you know, this Game of Thrones-like environment. Uh, but I feel like for most people, at least from my own experience, I've uh, come across uh, really good people. So I've been fortunate enough not to be in those environments. Uh, that said, I do know, I, you know, I have friends uh, who have worked in those terrible environments and it's really hard to get out of those environments. 
Right. Yeah. There's always the horror stories of those, you know, those kind of workplace environments where you don't ever feel safe to express your ideas or you're constantly being criticized. And whether that's coming from up high or someone at your level or whatever it happens to be, um, there are definitely rooms where people don't have a good time. And that obviously sucks. And, you know, you got to find a way around that uh, and find what works for you. And I think over the course of your career, you're probably going to run into rooms that are great and they gel well and everyone's best friends and rooms where it is a little more hectic like that. So it's just something to kind of expect that when this many different personnel and creatives with different visions come together, there are going to be clashes and then there are going to be people who are just like, you know, peas in a pod. It depends on the egos in the room. Generally speaking, the first few weeks in a new writer's room is going to be kind of like the honeymoon period. So everyone thinks they're uh, getting along perfectly. They're going to be best friends forever. You know, they're going to be my best man at my wedding kind of thing. But then, you know, a month in, two months in, three months in, you realize, holy crap, when the deadlines hit, that's when, you know, things get tough. And and usually when deadlines hit, that's when, you know, some writers are out of the room, some writers are in the room. It's kind of all over the place. Um, so that's usually when you get to see sort of like the real makeup of the room. Yeah, I mean, right. Writers' rooms can get very stressful. You know, you're you're on deadlines. You're trying to come up with ideas. You've gone through a million different iterations of things. You're staying late at night. So that's just another way, I guess, that like rooms could be. Um more conflict driven or, or a less good experience for people is that they're they're forced to stay very late and keep writing new versions of the script and all that kind of thing, even if they get along well with the people in the room. Um, so that kind of, those kind of conditions are going to make anyone, you know, <laughs> yell at each other eventually, all that kind of thing. It's like, we you know, when you go on a holiday with your best friend or you move in with your significant other after just seeing each other for dates and it's like, oh no, I, now I really understand what it's like to be with this person. Right. But I feel like, again, it comes back to the, the showrunner and the people in charge, right? If the show runner is forcing you the to stay until like 2 a.m. every night you know that problem is probably with the showrunner it's not with the show it's not with the other people in the room it's with the showrunner that's creating that atmosphere uh, on the other side if you're in an environment with uh, backstabby people and the showrunner is aware of that then by definition they're allowing that behavior by not firing those people so again it's like this weird balancing act where uh, if you're below you know a certain level you don't want to you know make waves but it's, it's hard not to make waves without, you know, learning the, the politics of the room. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that some of that behavior sometimes gets a free pass because it is the creative world. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, that guy's really mean and, 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 stressful and whatever but he's a genius or something like that but uh what's the book difficult men or something like that mm-hmm. about showrunners you know but uh, i th- we think at least that that shouldn't be the norm and that no, it's not <laughs> everyone should treat each other like human beings yeah regardless I, of how brilliant you are at your job absolutely and i feel like it's not the norm or at least personally again it's like moving towards a, a better place uh at least from my own experience and then the you know people i know yeah cool so no more allowing assholes if they're brilliant yes. <laughs> exactly um all right so we have a question here during blue lightning is the new writer allowed to add their thoughts was it blue lightning blue, or sky, blue, sky? Is what we're talking blue about. sky okay blue i thought sky? so I just wanted to check. he was an autocorrect yeah. <laughs> in terms of blue skying usually again it's you know you're in the writer's room and the creator that's usually at the beginning of the season so the the creator of the showrunner is going to be in the room initially pitching what the overall oracle framework of the season is going to be but that's a very loose framework so you know nine times out of ten everyone in the room is meant to contribute to that and build the sky and the skyline of what that show is going to look like on a more granular basis yeah in my experience it was very welcome for newer writers to be pitching out these big ideas just because it is kind of like there was really no stakes at this point it's not like we're on right. a deadline and we need to solve this story problem it's just like what do you think would be cool for that to happen in this show and that's why they bring in these different writers and that's 
that's why they hired you in particular because they think you have good ideas. Even if you, this is your first staffing job, you know, you won out over 200 other people that they were interviewing. So, um, you know, they do want to hear from you when it is that kind of free fall environment. Yeah. And that's why blue skying is dangerous sometimes because uh, it's kind of like that research phase uh, when you're, before you're writing a script where you can research your script for like decades, you know, uh, and blue skying can take forever, but it's at the end of the day, if you're not uh, getting something out of it after a few weeks, it's essentially procrastination. Really, you know, that, that work and that effort is going to be put in initially, but then by week, week three, uh, it's time to get, you know, down and gritty in, t- in terms of the season arc and the character arcs. Alrighty, cool. Well, gentlemen, that, those were the questions the writers had submitted. Mm-hmm. Writers, I don't know if you had been thinking of any more and biting your nails about how best to ask that question, but you should ask it now. Now would be the time, uh, and we'll give you just a moment. So while we're letting them do that, uh, would you gentlemen like to tell us a little bit about your podcast and where we might all go to find it? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been doing a podcast, which is why we have this equipment here in front of us, uh, called Paper Team. Let me get some business cards. Hold on yeah. a second. <laughs> uh, we've been doing this podcast for over two years now. Uh, we just had our 100th episode, which we did a big live event for at a theater. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we have had two, there you go, Paper Team. Um, we have had two live WonderCon panels out in Anaheim, which have always been a packed house. And we've had some really great panelists and guests on those. So we kind of started this podcast. Um, you know, out of a feeling of what do we wish that we knew when we were starting out as writers, when we were, we're both immigrants. I'm from Australia. My accents literally go away, as I said, but you know, mm-hmm. from France. And we're like, I wish I knew all of this stuff before I got here and had to find it from a million different places. So we wanted to kind of put that all in one place and show people what it's like realistically these days to break into the industry because we were right. kept hearing so many stories from experienced writers that, that are 30 years old, uh, stories that are 30 years old from like, I I mailed in my hard copy of a Star Trek spec to the Star Trek writer's room and they read it and they gave me a job. And it's like, well, that's great for you, but that doesn't just happen anymore. Yeah, hold on. Let me time travel back to the 90s and get a job. (laughs) Yeah. So we really just wanted to give people, aspiring writers and, you know, other people like the the tools and the knowledge needed to get their feet on the ground uh, in the industry and start networking and start working on their craft and understanding the business and how they can do what we do. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, my plan worked. Uh, we have a new question that appeared. Uh, so somebody has asked, what kind of progress are you seeing on the diversity front in writers' rooms? Well, I mean, from my show, my room was very diverse. Uh, sometimes, depending on the, you know, when writers were out of the room, I was the only guy in the room. Again, it depends on the showrunner. At the end of the day, that's if the, the showrunner and these people up top, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. I think that's when change is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that because of the way the industry has been for so many years that the people who are the higher level writers and the showrunners are by and, by and large, you know, older white men. And then so they know a bunch of other older white men and they put them all in a room together. And so we're lacking that that diversity of voices and experiences and the kind of things that are, uh, you know, really useful to a writer's room. And now we are seeing a, a more of an influx at those lower levels, but it's going to take a little while for them to work the way up the ranks and then get to their showrunner positions and start hiring more diverse there as well. So there have been a number of great initiatives like the fellowships and the diversity program and all of that kind of thing. But, you know, like Alex said, it really does uh, come down to the showrunner and who they're making the hiring decisions on. Um, but, you know, I can speak from personal experience. Uh, you know, my, my writing partner, Kelly D'Angelo, she's a Native American woman. And I was in uh, a pretty smallish room for final space. And another one of our guys, uh, our writers, Cam, was African-American and our writer's assistant was a woman. And so it really, it's honestly just such a great environment to have that diversity of perspectives and different experiences and voices in there uh, to contribute to something that, particularly in terms of representation, makes people feel like they 
they're being seen on screen. You know, we're representing um, diversity of, of race and gender and sexual identity and things like that. And, and we've seen a lot with uh, feature films these days that it's so important for people to see that, see that reflected back at them. Um, yeah, I always feel like it's incumbent upon the producers and the EPs uh, to make the room match what the show is. If uh, Hopefully the show is diverse, so why not make the room equally as diverse as the show? Uh, to me, that's maddening not to do that uh, because you do want those voices in the room. Uh, they'll be the ones able to talk about their own experiences in a way that other people cannot. Yeah, so I think that we are making progress. Um, you know, maybe it's a little slower than, than we'd like, but I think we will we'll get there in the next uh, little while. Yeah, I mean, you can only speak, uh, you know, through our own personal experiences, not something we... Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'm getting a lot of messages from the writers going, this was great. Thank you so much. Um, so I don't know if they have any more questions or if you have filled their brains with so much knowledge. Uh, they're so excited to get out there and tackle this. Um, okay, Mike, I see that you put something in the chat. I'm going to accept it this one time, a Q&A box next time, all right? Uh, what would be a... I'm playing again. Is that playing? <laughs> Sorry, I think there's... I'm not entirely sure. I'm convinced there's a military base around here somewhere and they do flight training all the time. Anyway, back to topic at hand. Uh, so Mike asks, what would be a good current sci-fi show to spec? Mm. Hmm. Uh, that's my specialty. <laughs> uh, let's see. A good current show is spec. I always uh, think of uh, specs as what show has lo- longevity, but also has stories to tell and matches your current, you know, your current samples. So there's different kinds of sci-fi shows I felt right now would be good. Obviously, most uh, CW shows would be, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty secure choice. I mean, I don't know if I would call them sci-fi, but they're definitely genre heavy. Uh, and that's more on the procedural end. I feel like The Expense actually would be a really interesting uh, show respect because it just got picked up by Amazon. It's getting uh, a lot of traction right now. The downside is it's very, very, very serialized and it's based on books. Uh, so that may not be accepted depending on the fellowship. So that's something you got to watch out for. Flip side from that, and Alex may disagree with me because he is mm-hmm. the, the spec expert. But uh, I think that perhaps it's a little overdone, but Black Mirror is an interesting one to write a spec for because although it, you know, it has certain elements that tie it into the voice of this show and whatever, it is a self-contained anthology thing. And so you can really tell your own little short story, just making sure you're touching on those themes of technology and humanity and how that looks. Black Mirror is actually a good choice. Uh, I personally consider it cheating because you're basically writing a pilot. You're <laughs> writing a standalone feature or, you know, standalone story and that's spec. So I would argue it doesn't really reflect the point of a spec, which is writing, you know, a sample episode of an existing show and Black Mirror's anthology. However, with all that said, Black Mirror is actually a good choice, assuming the fellowship in question does accept uh, that show. Right. You can make it memorable, I think, is important. Right. So. Absolutely. All right. Oh, cool. I don't see anything else either in the Q&A or in the chat. Mike says sorry. So I'll, <laughs> I'll accept your apology, Mike. Um, Alrighty, cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and call it. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. This was wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I should say you can check out our podcast, Paper Team, at www.paperteam.co. And it's and, available uh, on the pla- all the platforms. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, no, go go check it out, guys. If you like what you heard here, uh, look them up. All righty. Well, I'm going to let you all go. Have a great rest of your Sunday or possibly very early Monday morning. I think I have some international folks listening in. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're crazy brave. Uh, go off. Have a great rest of your day, night, whatever it is, and I will see you all in the next one. Bye, guys. See you guys. 
All right, and that's a wrap on our webinar and this episode of Paper Team. Uh, before we go, our Paper Tease competition is still open for submissions, so if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air from us, win prizes from our sponsors, and be eligible for the Paper Team mentorship. So thanks for everyone for tuning in and listening. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 105. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help us attract new listeners and build our Paper Team community. So thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Roadmap Writers, who in just two years have helped more than 50 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com to see their full slate of educational programs. Paper Team listeners can use the code ROADMAP, all one word, all caps, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to be doing another one of our monthly Paper Scraps episodes, taking a look at our September Paper Tease entries. Ooh, we'll see you then. Right, we'll catch you then.